Thanks for joining me on Two Age Sojourner and uh, for the first official 1689 Saturday. We're not smoking anymore, people. We're talking about the confession. That's such a good idea. And uh, I think I've got a good way to kick it off. So stay tuned for some more. Okay, 1689 Saturday. Uh, what better way to kick this off than through polemics and defense of Baptist theology? Uh, this is kind of a continuation of what I started talking about um, on, when was it? I think it was on Tuesday or Technical Tuesday. Yep. Uh, I kind of mentioned the book uh, that I'm looking through at the moment, The Failure of American Baptist Culture. But um, more specifically, I wanted to look at an article um, that I think stands head and shoulders above uh, the rest of the book. And look, you know, I'm going to mention the guy's name uh, and, and the title just for reference sake. Uh, the, 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 the article is called uh, Baptism, Redemptive History and Eschatology, the Parameters of Debate. And that's by P. Richard Flynn, who, I, who apparently is, a, was, is something like that, a New Zealand uh, minister in the Reformed Church. So that's very, very cool. And always good to know about guys in New Zealand. Not sure if he's still in New Zealand. G.I. Williamson, though, was a New Zealand, um, you know, reformed dude. So, I mean, that's awesome. I quote that guy all the time. Put out a put out a great commentary on the Westminster. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, so this guy wrote an article, honestly, it shines on, in this book. And it's just, it's just a very good um, uh, treatment of, I mean, where, where the article really excels is it takes an internal look. At um, I think two of the the strongest sort of, um, uh, I suppose paradigms. Um, there there are many though. I mean, there are so many. In fact, I think if just from memory, there's a book uh, by Peter Golding. Uh, it's called Covenant Theology, and my goodness, that book! Wow, he just uh, it was someone's uh, PhD dissertation at some point, I think, and uh, he just goes way into the history of covenant theology and uh, its entire state of affairs. There's no way you're going to come out of that book uh, ever thinking there is such a thing as Reformed theology again or Covenant theology again. Uh, there is only uh, varying, uh, well, there's a whole, perhaps a better way to put it, a whole continuum, a whole spectrum of Covenant theology. And um, and even amongst those who are Peter Baptist, you've got a ton of different approaches, largely because they do squiggle around a little bit with um, what to do, you know, as Protestant people, those who aren't Catholic, with um, something that was largely, a, you know, fit very well with the Catholic system, just get some just some water on the baby because grace is in the water, bada bing, bada boom, and you're done, you know, uh, that's it. Then all you need, you're good to go, and uh, just make sure to get that holy unction before you die, and obviously the Protestant reformers rejected all of that, but they, um, to reject the, the infant Baptist procedure, uh, through the Reformation, they knew would would cause a devastation to their movement, and um, and rightly so. I mean, wow, it would have killed it because it was the. It's like saying, because of the Reformation, no one can get passports or no one can get birth papers or anything like that. So it would have tucked right into the fiber of church and state and its amalgam at the time. And uh, we have the whole Zwingli Kelvin debacle uh, to show that and how that then flowed over to the Anabaptist thing. But I'm not going to be talking about that this morning. That's a topic for another day. Um, 
I uh, I want to look instead at this article and just uh, interact with it a little bit. But let me just say that even if you've never heard this guy, never re- never planning on reading the article, uh, the reason I wanted to bring it up is not so that you can necessarily go out and read it, but just because it's very, very relevant to this podcast. And uh, the ideas are, are just, uh, even if you never read them in the article, just the ideas themselves are worth knowing. So that's hopefully what we can do right now. Um uh, if it gets too long, I might cut this off halfway and keep going next time. But we'll see how we go. Um, the issue here is that he, um, what I really liked, again, is he he looks at some of the internal tension between uh, these titan theologians, John Murray, very, very important theologian in the Reformed faith, especially contemporary sort of stuff. Uh, and, of course, Meredith Klein. Uh, and we know we love Meredith Klein. So anything about that. He's always cool. Uh, what I liked about him is that he, you know, firstly, I mean, you hardly ever get guys that interact with that who are not Kleinian. So it's just very cool to see him being aware of that and uh, the, the differences. You can see he looked at that properly, represented Murray well, represented um, uh, Klein well, and uh, showed that basically where you've got, well, in fact, I'm just going to skip over Murray's thing because I'm not really that interested in, I think that's a slam dunk in terms of, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, the whole thing is just kind of so far from being um, even worth critiquing because, I mean, any Kleinian would would reject it, I think. Uh, but that said, let's focus on Klein and how that brings, I think, one of the best arguments, one of the best, if not the best, certainly one of the more convincing, certainly one of the arguments that I've taken more seriously in terms of what what what's going on with infant baptism and how you can remain Protestant and how you can... Um, still keep the gospel intact and see the importance of faith and all of that. Um, and so, uh, Klein, um, his big thing is, um, so if you ever have read uh, By Oath Consigned, it's one of Klein's books. I, I think personally it's his worst one um, from what I've read. But, uh, you know, I can see how uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's good. It's not. It's not totally bad. And as a Baptist, I embrace a lot of it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just think he was a little bit off form on that. But anyway, so this guy uh, uh, rightly uh, summarizes Klein's final concluding definition. He says is that uh, baptism is a sign of incorporation within the judicial sphere of Christ's covenant lordship for a final verdict of blessing or curse. That's uh, straight out of um, By Earth Consigned in Klein's words. Klein, uh, and this is um, uh, the author, he says, for, for Klein is, uh, or he believes that that's a, a self-maledictory oath indicating a neutral position of either curse or blessing, which I think is a really good good uh, summary of what Klein believes. Now, what that means is um, he looks at the Abrahamic covenant and he says, okay, so here's the deal, um, that 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 typology connected to circumcision was clearly a a self-malediction showing the need to cut away the sinful flesh or go through uh, the judgment, Um, either to be found in the one that would ultimately do that for uh, the people of Israel, which is uh, Christ, or to um, go through that judgment 
uh, on your own, uh, which is, of course, um, very similar to to the kind of thing that is uh, being spoken of in baptism. You, I mean, do you want to be found in the death and resurrection in Christ, or or do you want to found, uh, be found um, uh, outside of Christ? So, same sort of thing. That's what he means by by um, uh, self malediction. Uh, either we're in uh, in the the Savior that God provides, or we are taking those curses upon ourselves directly. Um, and so again, baptism, he says, um, and he's just getting this straight from circumcision, uh, is a sign of incorporation. So basically, just you know, think about this. Circumcision is a sign of incorporation within the judicial sphere of God's or Christ's covenant lordship for a final blessing of, of, of um, a verdict, at least of blessing or curse. So he wants to leave the 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 destiny of the person um, being uh, issued with this covenant sign, let's say circumcision, um, open. Uh, you know, what it, it's not to say that that person will be found in the one who bears the curse. Um, it simply says that that person is now uh, in a covenant bond of some kind with the Lord. <clears throat> Which um, or covenant relationship, which allows for the possibility, at least now, of that uh, child believing the gospel and therefore, you know, having someone stand in his place. Uh, but if he uh, fails to be found in the the, the, the promises of the covenant, uh, finding their uh, fulfillment in the gospel, then there is an extra sense of uh, curse mediated to him. Uh, beyond it, so it heaps up judgment essentially. There's an extra sense of um, accountability, I suppose you could say. Um, and so again, to see the summary here, for Klein, it, uh, for Klein, it is a self-maledictory oath. This is what uh, the the covenant sign is, indicating a neutral position. So it's not like the, these people are just um, automatically assumed to be in the kingdom of God, saved ultimately in heaven forever. Um, no, it's a, oath, uh, it's a sign indicating a neutral position of either curse or blessing. Right. Now, the reason I like that is because I think that's a million times better than saying, um, okay, well, let's just go ahead and um, give the covenant sign to our kids and, um, you know, just presume that they are therefore regenerate. Um, and will eventually at one point manifest faith. And if they don't, like, that's just awkward. And uh, we'll just, you know, they're, they're, they're really going to be busted. But, but, and so we kick him out at that point. But really, that no one really knows what's going on there. That shouldn't have happened. Certainly, that's not what, what baptism means. And that's more like Murray's position. It leads in that direction. Uh, he, he wants to, um, to be fair, what Murray wants to do is separate the illocutionary illocu- act from the perlocutionary act. And if you don't know what that means, it's just sometimes when you say something, uh, it's different from the event that transpires from what you say. Um, happens all the time, every day when we speak, uh, we we speak uh, something. We uh, without uh, through our locution, we um, we speak, and uh, it might be interpreted in a different way to the way that we intended. So, in that sense, the perlocution is different from the illocution. But um, how that applies to baptism, or, or at least the covenant sign for for guys like Murray, is that the God's intent, the elocution, is always to see the person saved, and so we should presume it. Um, and yet, the 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 perlocution might might well not turn out that way, 
um, because of the sinner's heart and, you know, people will harden themselves. So I've always found that to be extremely lame because it's just like it just undermines the very fabric of what the whole gospel is all about to begin with. So that's just stretching. Now, Klein doesn't do that. Um, he admits that, you know, you can't. You can't do anything more than say there's a position of neutrality. And they are now for the first time in a position where they could at least accept the gospel promises. They're now in a, a covenant bond. And certainly for Abraham and those those guys, I could say that's 100% true. They're brought into the covenant family. Uh, there is an external dimension to that covenant administration. So uh, it's true that now for the first time they have the possibility of believing the promises. And uh, therefore... Uh, having been uh, having the the, the maledictory, maledictory sort of curse fall on Christ rather than themselves, um, and um, and so that is um, at least a kind of you can see how that works. Let's put it that way. Um, there's no like obvious crazy objection to that. Um, it's, especially when you come into the Abrahamic covenant, you know, and all the old Old Testament stuff. I mean, I have no real objection to that. I think that's why I read Klein. I think he's great with that. He's um, He just nailed the Old Testament stuff. And I think all the insights that he brings in terms of self-maledictory oath, that's great. Um, I, I take it all on board. Uh, but the problem with bringing that into uh, the New Covenant is that it really undermines what the New Covenant says baptism is, which, uh, you know, you can't do that. You can't just say, hey, we've really nailed the Abrahamic Covenant. Therefore, we'll just sort of impose all of the paradigm of that administration onto a totally different administration. Yes, it's the same overarching theological expression and revelation of the covenant of grace, but it's a different administration. And the whole thing about the new covenant is that it is now no longer in shadowy typological form. It is now administered in terms of the substance. And that's like Jeremiah 31, which we'll go to in a second, but, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big thing right there. Now, um, what he says here is uh, Klein, uh, for Klein at least, it makes being in the covenant an uncertain neutral affair with no priority given to grace as the sign of the covenant is applied to the candidate. Um, and so the problem is, you know, they want to take what, what would be totally fine. And we see this work out in terms of Abrahamic covenants or, or the covenant and uh, the, the, those covenants that follow from it, you certainly see people getting circumcised and not ending up professing faith and certainly show themselves to be reprobate. And uh, that's no problem because that's the way that that was supposed to be administered. I, I think he's dead on with that. So hopefully you're with me and tracking with me on that aspect. Um, as the author says, Klein properly understands this dual aspect of the covenant, that it is a bond in which one experiences either curse or blessing. Totally good totally applicable to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the issue now is as we bring this into the new covenant um, and is what he summarizes um, in light of Klein and Murray and trying to take the best out of everything. And I think uh, most Presbyterians would agree with most of this. Um, so it's a good basis to move forward on. And it's a good way to show you the linchpin of the problem and the, um, the issue that I take with all of it. Um, they say that, um, uh, let me, in summary, we maintain that the distinctions introduced above, blah, 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 uh, the following propositions can be held with respect to baptism. Uh, number one, it signifies and seals entrance into the new eschatological age of the covenant of grace. Ooh, 
I've got to come back to that one. Uh, number two, it is intended to signify regeneration, grace, and blessing to the recipient. Uh, okay. Uh, it is a powerful oath and will exercise great significance irrespective of the response of the recipient. So what he's wanting to do there is just bring in a little bit of Murray and say, okay, look, Klein, we get it, objective neutral position, covenant bond, whatever. But hey, uh, you can't you can't say that God had no disposition in his elocutionary um, a, a pronunciation of this covenant promise to 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 bless and rather rather than to curse. So let's just lean on that side. That's where he ends up, which I think is fair enough. I mean, if you're a Presbyterian. Or even just for the Abrahamic covenant, you know, I mean, is God's disposition to bless or curse? Well, obviously to bless, so that's fine. But it's just, I'll come back to why that's a problem in a second. Thirdly, he says, it's a powerful oath. It will exercise great significance irrespective of the, of the response of the recipients. So essentially saying, listen, once you get baptized, I mean, or sprinkled or whatever, you've entered into this covenant relationship and now you are at a deeper level of accountability and this covenant will one way or another affect you. It'll mediate blessing or cursing at a greater level to you. Uh, which, yeah, that's where it starts getting cray-cray. Uh, for the promises and grace indicated in the covenant will be realized only through faith. Um, psh, okay, good, awesome. Um God's righteous vengeance, fifthly, prefigured in the cross and the destruction of the apostate Jerusalem will be exercised toward the unrepentant recipient of baptism. So that's the that's the wrath that then gets mediated to the the one who is baptized as an infant and turns out not to believe. Uh, that increased accountability. So he, did, he didn't really need to put that as a fifth point, I don't think. But anyways, here's the issue. The first point he makes is the linchpin. Uh, he says it signifies, baptism signifies and seals entrance into the new eschatological age of the covenant of grace. Um, I agree with that statement, but that would exclude infants. All right. And this is what we're going to focus in on. But then this is what you need to understand. Uh, just again, just kind of working with the best possible infant Baptist position, in my view, at least. Um you know, there are, there are different angles if you're taking, like, the, to the people that are presupposing regeneration. I don't know. There's just a whole bunch more you could say. But working with the best possible position, um, all you need to do is to see where they've gone wrong, is to see that um, if you just replace the covenant sign, whenever they say covenant sign, you just say gospel proclamation. And... And all of a sudden, everything they're saying makes 100% sense, and it takes the weirdness away. And so the, that's what they're doing. They're, they're equivocating this issue of covenant sign. So they, they're, they're getting it right. Here's the force of the argument. Here's the magic of it. Here's the sleight of hand. Here's where it mystifies uh, Baptists, especially those who don't know where, where they're standing covenantally and w- what the deal is with biblical theology. They start getting, uh, you know... Uh, all doubled up and twisted at this point. All they're doing is saying, hey, all the force of our argument rests on the Abrahamic covenant and it is correct. And to, you know, and, and that's it's true. So it, it gains a incredible sense of credibility there because you're like, oh, that's true. Oh, that's also true. Oh yeah, that's true. For the Abrahamic covenant. The next step they have, 
which is the kind of, this is the sleight of hand. You need a bit of an impossible leap to do this, but they want to basically take that which you've agreed to and seen the exegesis of and impose it upon the new covenant administration, um, which has so much resonance with what we know to be true about the new covenant administration, accepting that uh, what is true in terms of its um, its parallel has not to do with, we know it's true, we feel it's true, but sometimes we miss, just at least subconsciously, we, we aren't alert enough to see it's true, not in an exactly parallel way, but in a way that is now fulfilled in the gospel proclamation responded to by faith and therefore administered with the covenant sign. And to say anything else, to just to just go circumcision to baptism is equivocating the concept. Uh, it's, it's saying there is an equality where there is none. Um, and, and so that's what we have to be careful with. Now to demonstrate that, I'm just going to reread those points and replace um, the whole um, language of the covenant sign with the gospel proclamation. And I think you'll find yourselves amening right? Because this is 100% true. Uh, he says, uh, where it's supposed to say, the covenant sign is given to infants, right? Is indeed intended to, sorry, is intended to signify regeneration, grace, and blessing to the recipient, the one who receives it. Now, change that with the proclamation of the gospel, the good news. The, the proclamation of the gospel is intended to signify, um, right, maybe it wouldn't use the word signify, but um, it's intended to proclaim, signify in that sense, regeneration, um, grace, and blessing to the one who receives it, the recipient. Um, thirdly, they want to say the covenant sign given to infants is a powerful oath, and it will exercise great uh, significance irrespective of the response of the, the recipient. That's exactly true for gospel proclamation. Uh, the good news comes to you. It is a powerful promise of God. It will exercise, that's what our oath means, and will exercise great significance irrespective of the response of the recipient. That's what we always say when the word will accomplish what it sets out to do, right? Doesn't matter which way people are going to go. Once they've heard the gospel, there is just this reality that the word will work in them, either to harden them or to soften them or to bring judgment upon them or to uh, bring life to them. Uh, that's exactly what the gospel proclamation does. Uh, it's not what the covenant sign of baptism does. That's the issue. You could say, as far as the covenant sign of baptism went in, or at least of circumcision went in the Old Testament, that would be true. Like the difference is between a, a stop sign and a wedding ring. Um, you look when you when you stop at a stop sign, it's saying something is coming up that's going to happen. And a wedding ring, you know, you look back on the symbol, and it's also a sign, but it's of something that has already happened. That's the difference. And to say that a wedding ring is like a stop sign because both of them are signs is an equivocation that we need to be careful of. Yes, there are signs in some sense, and that's where the credibility of the argument comes from, but not a sign in, in the same way, with the same relationship. And that's where the, the problem lies with their argument. Um, again, just coming to the fourth point here, the, the, uh, the covenant sign administered to an infant promises, um, uh, shows the promises and grace indicated in the covenant will be realized only through faith, all right? Um, 
totally true for Abrahamic covenant, right? That's the whole point. That's exactly what that what that was supposed to happen. Not true for baptism because the whole thing is only supposed to happen once you're married, right? So once you got the wedding ring, um, in the lead up to that, you're meant to hear the gospel and so replace gospel proclamation again with what they're saying and listen what you get. The gospel proclamation preached um, reveals the promises and grace indicated in this covenant, the new covenant or the covenant of grace will be realized only through faith. That's what you preach. You're like, if you believe, if you repent, that's the whole deal. Uh, so God promises to save you, if but but you have to believe and repent of your sins. Um, so you see how they're equivocating that. So you read that, you go, oh, that's true on the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, that's also so resonant with what we know to be true in the New Testament. But sometimes we fail to pick up that equivocation. And so uh, that's why I think the argument takes a certain degree of force for those who perhaps aren't theologians that just either are born into the reform thing or just kind of, uh, you know, aren't, aren't particularly astute when they're looking through all of this and they just sort of go, oh, that sounds pretty resonant with what I'm hearing in the New Testament. But it's 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 just, again, a sleight of hand. Last point, God's righteous vengeance um, prefigured in the cross and the destruction of the apostate Jerusalem will be exercised towards the unrepentant uh, recipient of baptism as a covenant sign, so they talk about that administered to infants if the infant grows up. Uh, now, <laughs> what they're going for there is an increased accountability. The, the covenant wrath will fall upon them. But that is true of anyone who hears the gospel and rejects the gospel, not if you receive the covenant sign for crying out loud. Now, it is true of the Abrahamic administration, but again, you can't impose that on the fulfilled new covenant administration. That's another sleight of hand. Um, so if I just replace that, God's righteous vengeance prefigured in the cross, what happened at the cross, basically it's going to fall upon Jesus at the cross, or it's going to fall upon you if you don't believe or if you don't repent. The, the way to get this, uh, I think, um, right on the horns is if you talk to someone who believes this, you just ask them, okay, so what does it mean then for, uh, if that's what the covenant sign means, how does all of this apply to just old normal gospel preaching? And what they'll end up having to say is, oh, well, preaching the gospel is pretty much exactly the same thing as getting the covenant sign. And then you're like, but boom, yes, exactly right. And that's exactly what they've done. They've basically turned the getting of the covenant sign uh, into the, the equivalent of preaching the gospel or hearing the gospel. Um, now, again, it makes it feels forceful and makes sense because that's how it did work with the Abrahamic covenant. But the problem is that's not how it works with the new covenant it isn't the same thing the whole thing that i mean it's impossible to get through paul's um epistles without going you know what the one thing you're assured of if you're baptized is that this action of yours in receiving the gospel has already taken place and therefore as surely as you have been baptized you now will uh, receive those promises no longer is there a possibility of mediating the covenant wrath uh, through the the administration of the sign, the the, the fulfillment has come now. Uh, it is true that you could apost uh, apostatize or apostatize at least, or you could um, uh, just you know renounce the faith or whatever. But I mean, you're not going to get extra wrath mediated because you were baptized. You're going to get wrath mediated because 
you pretended to believe and were baptized, and uh, you, you in fact did not believe in the gospels and uh, the gospel. And to the degree that you knew the gospel and became familiar with it and turned away from it, that's where the accountability lies. Um, so you see how slight it is, and and I, you got to admit it's an ingenious argument. As I always say, it seems a shame not to believe it, but you know what? It's that's not a good enough reason. You got to give him props for just going all the way in terms of trying to figure figure out a way to make the sound as Protestant as possible. But my goodness, uh, that's that's tricksy. Um, okay, now as I said, the linchpin is this issue with. Um, the sign and seal and entrance into the eschatological age of the new covenant. Th- that's the real issue. I mean, I think exegetically, you go to Jeremiah 31, you can't say that. It's not, that that whole thing, everything behind that statement is resting on an argument that, look, it's true for Abraham. And Abraham's covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. Therefore, uh, all that's different now is that the new covenant brings in the eschatological age, and therefore, we administer it the same way. Uh, And look, if there wasn't stuff like Jeremiah 31 and John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul, I mean, I'd say, fine, let's just do that. That makes sense. But you know what? There's a lot of stuff getting in the way of that. And um, I see I've gone on a little bit uh, too far for a Saturday, maybe. So what I'll do is just let you um, process that. Again, uh, Baptism, Redemptive History, and Eschatology is the um, title of the article. And it's P. Richard Flynn, the author. And uh, the book is called um, Failure of American Baptist Culture. And you can get that on Gary North website, The Crazy Reconstructionist. Dude, um, on GaryNorth.com, I think it is. I think if you know Gary North, you'll know I am not over-exaggerating there. Um, Okay, so that's something to think about. There's a 1689 Saturday for you. If you're in the 1689 camp, you're in the right camp. Ha! Boom. Um, Okay, I think I'll stop it there before I get into too much trouble with my Presbyterian buddies. Uh, Bless you guys. Go to church tomorrow. Receive the sacrament. And... uh, And know that as surely as you have believed and received, these things are true. Amen. Amen.